In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A few years ago, I found myself inside the spaceship-like concrete basilica, which is the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth. If you've ever been there uh, to this massive basilica, and I know some of you just went uh, a few months ago with Father Mark, um, you'll know that within there is actually a smaller and a much more ancient crusader chapel that contains the Grotto of the Annunciation. And in this grotto is an altar with the spine-chilling engraving, Verum Caro Hic Factum Est, The Word Became Flesh Here. Now, after spending some time in that grotto, I left the basilica, and I started to wander around outside before it was time to go back to the tour bus. And since I'm not one for crowds, I decided to head a few hundred feet up the hill away from the basilica, where I saw what looked like an old stone church that was wedged between a boarding school and an apartment complex, the Church of St. Joseph. Now, this church, much like the UFO-shaped basilica down the hill, is also built over a crusader chapel, the Church of the Nutrition. At least that's what I could glean off the plaque that was mounted on the wall of this small cave system that was beneath the basically empty church. The Church of the Nutrition. Sort of an odd name for a church. And so I asked a religious sister nearby, hoping that she knew English, why such a name was given. And she told me that the cave that I was standing in was believed to be the workshop of St. Joseph, and therefore the home of the Holy Family. Now that's an awesome thought to consider, especially since I was practically the only one there. Everyone else, all the pilgrims, were down the hill at the side of the Annunciation. And it's not that I don't think the Annunciation is important or anything like that, but the thought struck me that day, and it still strikes me, that even before our Lord changed water into wine, or preached the Sermon on the Mount, or before he was transfigured, or before he underwent his passion for all of our sakes, before all of that, the first thing he ever sanctified was that little cave between the boarding school and the apartment complex. The first thing he sanctified was a home. Now, in 1921, Pope Benedict XV extended the Feast of the Holy Family into the universal calendar of the church that we celebrate today. And he did this, as he said, because he wanted to give Christian families a model for the ideal of family life, which, of course, was very much needed in the world in 1921, which is only three years after the conclusion of the First World War. And I would argue that this model is still needed for the obvious reason that most of society has completely forgotten what a family is or why families are needed. The Catechism teaches that the family, not the individual, that the family is the most basic unit of society. And yet, perhaps because of the ordinary nature of the family, it's not something that we think about a lot today. And that's probably the reason I was the only person in that church in Nazareth. People today are far more concerned about extraordinary things. But our Lord's family wasn't remarkable. And I don't mean that to discount the Holy Family by any means, but St. Joseph wasn't some famous politician or gladiator. Nazareth wasn't a bustling metropolis in our Lord's time. And we know that the Holy Family was poor. That's why they had to offer a pair of turtle doves and a pigeon, because that was the sacrifice for a poor family in the Old Testament. But this is the family that our Lord chose for himself, an ordinary family. And so ordinary, in fact, that the only story we have about this family is the one that we heard in the gospel today. So if we're to understand this family, we're going to have to ask ourselves, what is so significant about this story in St. Luke's gospel that merited its inclusion in the Bible? Now, we 
very sadly, the gospel the church gives us today doesn't actually finish the passage, but if you go just a few more verses uh, in St. Luke's gospel, uh, you hear him write, each year, <coughs> Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Now, if you don't know much about the Jewish law, you would think that this is just a sign that the Holy Family was pious, and indeed it is. However, according to the law, only men were required to go to the festival in Jerusalem. In fact, only men over the age of 14 were required to make this pilgrimage. But St. Luke tells us that not only do Jesus' parents make this pilgrimage together every year, but that our Lord himself made this pilgrimage for the first time at the age of 12, which would have been two years before he was required to go under the law. So we're not dealing with Easter Sunday Catholics here, right? The observance of the feast days of the Lord were central to the life of the Holy Family. And secondly, St. Luke tells us that they traveled with their relatives, but they're probably not Joseph's relatives because Joseph was from Bethlehem. (coughs) So we can only assume that the Holy Family made this annual pilgrimage with Mary's family from Nazareth, thus hearkening to the words of Genesis, a man will leave his father and his mother and cling to his spouse. And in the concluding verses of the chapter, Luke shows us the humility of our Lord who makes himself subject to his human parents. Luke writes, He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. Now, there's a lot we could glean out of these verses to apply to family life and certainly to expound upon our Lord's identity as the Son of the Father. But for the sake of time, I'm going to narrow it down to just a few short, <coughs> a few short points. And the first is in relationship to how the family as what the church calls the domestic church, the church of the home, how the family is able to unite its own prayer and worship to that of the universal, the ecclesial church, by celebrating the feast days of the liturgical year. So Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover every year, says St. Luke. Christian parents have an obligation to educate their children in what we call the virtue of religion. But one concrete way we do that is if parents go out of their way to celebrate feast days together as a family. Now, children are used to marking certain days of the year, their birthday, their sibling's birthday, the day that school begins, certain civil holidays when they don't have to go to school, or uh, national days when they know they're in for good cooking and family time together and people go out to the lake. Like They know about that. Children, uh, Christian parents need to make a custom of marking with great solemnity the feast of the church's year. And you can do this sort of thing by saving certain foods for use on feast days or by decorating the house, by teaching children what the feast is celebrating, by preparing for them ahead of time, and of course, by going to Mass. And just as our Lord himself was able to mark these feasts at a young age, we shouldn't be afraid to give these mysteries to even young children. Um, so that with every passing year, they can grow in their understanding of both the importance of these days and also the realities of what they celebrate. A professor at Baylor University in Texas, Dr. Michael Foley, he wrote the famous book, Drinking with the Saints. Um, Dr. Foley gave a conference at the seminary when I was studying where he talked about how whenever a priest visits his house, his kids all get a glass of wine because he wants them to associate drinking with good things and not like we do in Natchez. So something to think about. Secondly, we should recognize that while there is certainly an importance to allowing children to grow in friendships at their school or in their neighborhood, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility of them growing in love of their own extended families, even if they don't have cousins their own age. 
And one of the reasons I think that today we don't see young people caring for their elderly parents is perhaps because they weren't trained as children to see their older family members as people they were responsible for or people they should love and celebrate. We have to begin again giving precedence to the family in our life, perhaps by even combining the first recommendation I gave you and to invite families, extended families, to celebrate feast days together. Christmas isn't the only time a family should come together. It isn't even the most important day of the year. Easter is usually, regrettably, celebrated with less solemnity in American families than the way we celebrate Valentine's Day. And yet Easter is the most important day of the year. It's the entire reason we're Christian. We have to reclaim these holy days as family days as well. And finally, Christian parents must once again take responsibility for the spiritual formation of their children. To the great dismay of priests, most parents today allow their children to give precedence to nearly anything else in life other than the church, usually because parents will give precedence to nearly anything else in life other than the church. Five years ago, I taught fifth and sixth grade students at Our Lady of Lourdes in Greenville, and I can't tell you how maddening it is to try to get students to go to Mass on Sunday or to understand why they should go to church when their parents spend every Sunday doing anything they can possibly imagine to keep them from having to go to Mass. Not to mention how hard it is to try to convince a child of the necessity of sacramental confession when they've never seen their parent do it or their sibling go to confession. And what really becomes depressing, and this happens a lot more than you may realize, is when young children, like fifth or sixth grade students, come to confession and tell me they miss Mass because their parents didn't take them. And all the while, we're sending out surveys and plastering studies all over the church walls saying that the thing that young people today want is a church that's relevant to them. Well, I can't possibly imagine how young people could possibly want a church that looks different than the one their parents have given them because the church that parents have given them is one that lets them get married and then disappear until they die. And Christ the Lord was obedient to his human parents. He was God. And because of that, Scripture tells us he advanced in wisdom and in favor before God. If that's true for the incarnate Son of God, then surely it must be true in our ordinary families as well. Jesus Christ entered this world as no extraordinary child. And he took to himself no extraordinary family because he wanted to demonstrate to us that all families have a divinely given duty to sanctify the world, right? That's your job. It's not my job. It's your job as the laity to sanctify the world. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, began his ministry of salvation on this earth by sanctifying his home. And therefore, every one of our homes have to become little churches of the nutrition wedge between the schools and the apartment complexes of our own town. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.